<clears throat> hey, it's good to see um, everyone online again. Um, so, you know, last week I, I, I just finished a service, our sermon series on Hebrews, on, on perseverance and things that the author of Hebrews gives us to persevere. And if you remember, one of those things was an encouragement as a community to spur one another on to love and good works, um, to really be able to have a, a community that that's able to get in our faces, so to speak, um, someone that we are also open to that will tell us when we're on the wrong track. And <clears throat> that's a big picture of things, but uh, we're coming back to 1 Corinthians and and. I think this is one of those practical issues where we, we, we need some understanding, but also some community. And um, I, I think uh, as I look at 1 Corinthians, we're, we, we stopped with chapter 5 last time. It was a while ago, and I, I looked at 1 Corinthians, and it's, it's just too long. The book is just really long, I, I realize. It's just so much stuff there. And so going forward, I, I'm not going to go through the whole book, the uh, rest of the book. I'm, I'm just going to, I just want to put out some key passages. And... Uh, two chapters that are really big in this book, I think that's very practical for us is in chapter six and chapter seven. And so what we're going to look at that, but I want to preface this because I put that in an email. I asked Amy to put that in an email. Today's sermon is going to be rated PG. So if your children are watching with you um, and you're not sure, uh, it's PG today, but next week will be PG 13. Okay. Because <clears throat> we, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about sex. All right. And, um, this is an issue that I think it, it, it's probably one of the most talked about issues in the New Testament, believe it or not. And yet in the church, it's probably one of the least talked about issues in our church. And if you're married and you think that this is going to be about the singles, because uh, you remember what it was like being single, you know, you'll be mistaken. You read chapter seven and this issue is not just for singles. It's also for married people as well. And it's an important issue. Now, I realize as we get into this, I realize that, you know, some of you are going to be thinking like, you know, it, it's just not realistic or practical enough or, you know, what I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do or, or whatever the case is. And, you know, that's 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 up to you. But I think at least we need to understand and be clear about, I think, the New Testament's perspective on this very important, and very practical issue for all of us. Uh, and before you decide things, before you think about things and how you think about this issue, I think it's important to understand the Bible's perspective on this. And so that's why we're looking at this, not only because it's the next issue in our, in our series here in 1 Corinthians as we come back to it, but it's also I think it's, it's an important issue to, to kind of address and to, and to talk about. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. But today is PG, and what I want to do today is... Before we talk about how relevant the issues are to us, I, I want to see how relevant it was to them, to the people here in the Church of Corinth, and to see how Paul t addresses them, okay? Now, we've already said this before, that this church uh, had a lot of pride. It, they were spiritually puffed up. They, they considered themselves probably one of the most spiritual churches or the most Christian churches, and yet they had an issue of sexual immorality. That's what Paul calls it, sexual immorality. In fact, it was so bad in this church that during this time, they, they coined a phrase after this, this town that had this issue, in a, in a verb to Corinthianize, literally meant to engage in, in all sorts of debauchery and, and, and issues and sin, including sexual sin. And so this was a very common issue in this church. Paul's writing to this church and he's going to address it. And what's the issue? Okay. Well, it's in verse 16. He, he, he points out the issue this way. He says, he who is joined to a prostitute 
becomes one flesh with her. Okay, there you have the issue. Now, now listen carefully, because you might think if this issue could occur today, I'm sure whether you're Christian or not, this is pretty crazy. But <clears throat> during this time, there was a lot of pagan uh, religion going on, and one of them was the worship of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And they had this temple, uh, the Temple of Aphrodite. And uh, what people were doing in this Corinthian church was oftentimes on the way to church, they would stop by the Temple Aphrodite, right? And the thing about the Temple Aphrodite is that they actually had prostitutes uh, around the temple, right, legitimately. And... If you were going to church in Corinth and you're a Christian and, and you saw the temple Aphrodite, you would stop by this temple and you would engage with one of the prostitutes. And after you're done, you would go to church and worship, right? Uh, this was what was going on. <clears throat> and uh, it, was, it was well known. Now, let me ask you this. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we saw that today? I mean, what would you do if I said, hey, you know what? Today is church service, but just before I just used a prostitute and now I'm here with you worshiping. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of strange, right? It, it, it's, it's, it, would be, it would be crazy. I think you don't have to be a Christian to see maybe that this is kind of uh, uh, an issue here. And the question that you've got to ask is this, how is that possible, right? I mean, this church that was prideful in their, in their spirituality, that considered themselves most spiritual and most Christian than any other church, if that was true, then, then how did this church, how do people in this church engage in such a practice? Now, here's what we're going to do today. <clears throat> I've got seven points, all right, seven points. And, and don't worry, it, the length of the sermon is, is not really uh, much longer, or it's, it's pretty much the same, but I've got seven points. I'm going to give you two reasons for what I think Paul tells us, why this church was doing what they did, okay? And I'm going to give you five truths, five truths that Paul gives them to think about and to try and change their behavior. Two reasons why they did what they did, and then five things of, of five truths that Paul gives them to rethink what they're doing, okay? And these two reasons are this. One, they had a distortion of truth. They had some truth, but it was a little bit distorted. And two, they had a particular view of their physical bodies. These are two reasons that they justified in engaging what they did, okay? So let's look at these two reasons. First, they had truth, but it was a distortion of truth. They weren't using prostitutes on the way to church, or they weren't using prostitutes as Christians in a deceptive kind of way. It's not like, you know, they were going to Christians, like they're going to church like some of us, and then secretly and behind everyone's back and like anyone knowing, we engage in something really terrible, right? That's not what they were doing. They, they didn't consider themselves being hypocritical. hypocritical. They didn't consider themselves being deceptive, at least in their own eyes. But it was because of their thinking. It was in their thinking. And this is what Paul has been trying to say in all of his letters, that behavior doesn't just happen out of nowhere, okay? It begins somewhere, and it usually begins in your head, in the way you think about things, in your understanding, in your thinking. And right thinking ought to produce right behavior. And on the other, on the other hand, wrong thinking can lead to some problems. So it's not always that, that people do bad things based on complete falsehood or, or, or deception. Sometimes there's always a little bit of truth to how they understand things. But, and for this church, there were a couple of ways that the church was thinking and they were saying these things that led them to where they were with this issue of sexual immorality. 
Okay, so look, I'm, I'm just trying to give you what, what's going on here in this passage today. And then next week, we'll look at maybe some of these things and how they might affect us today. But Paul addresses this church directly as he quotes two of their sayings, okay, two, two slogans that were used in this church that seemed to justify what they were doing. You know, kind of the slogans like we use today, like live and let live, you know, and it sounds good, but, but you know, there could be some problems. And those two slogans in this church are found in verse 12 and verse 13. The first one is, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. And the second truth in verse 13 is this, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Okay, these are the two things that they were saying, there were slogans, there were, there were beliefs, there were the way that they were thinking about things that led them to where they were in this church or in this, in this book. And so let's look at these things. What do they mean? They, the first thing that they said, the first uh, reason for why they did what they did was this. They believed all things are lawful for me. Okay, now on first reading, you might think they're basically saying this. I can do whatever I want because I'm an adult. On a surface reading, you might think, well, you know, they're, they're kind of giving you a response that like your teenage kid will tell you once they turn 18 or 19, they say, hey, I can do whatever I want because now I'm an adult. All things are lawful for me. Okay. But it's more than this. It was more than this. They were confessed Christians. They followed Jesus Christ. But in their thinking, because they followed Jesus, because they believed that they were saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, they were free from the law. And this is absolutely true. It was true. But they took that truth and then they distorted it to mean that now because they follow Jesus, nothing was out of bounds. Now that they were forgiven, now that they live by grace and not by works, nothing was out of bounds. All things are now lawful for me. And that all things seem to include even sex with prostitutes, believe it or not. And so Paul in a nutshell addresses this and he quotes them. He says, you say all things are lawful, but then he says, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. It's true. You have liberty, you've got freedom, but just because something is free to do, just because something is not exactly a sin, at least maybe even in your own eyes, doesn't always mean that therefore it's always good. That some things, though it's not always clearly sinful, can be just as unwise or just as detrimental. Yes, Paul says, by grace, through faith, you've been freed. You've been free from condemnation. You've been free from that legalism, that legalistic way of living a life. But what do you do with that freedom? And Paul's trying to say, yeah, you're free from things, right? You're free from the law. But Paul's now saying, but what are you free for? What are you free for? Because you're free for things. And the things that are beneficial, the things that are helpful to others are, ought to be the things that you are free for and free to do. Yes, all things are lawful, he says in, in, in verse 12, but I will not be dominated by anything, he says. Just because something is permissible, that you think you could do something, you know, do whatever you want that you're free to do, doesn't always mean that you're free from enslavement, right? Just because food is good, for example, and you're free to eat whatever you want, it doesn't mean that you're free from high cholesterol. It doesn't mean you're going to be free from diabetes. It doesn't mean that you're going to be free from obesity, right? In other words, just because you're free to do things doesn't mean you're never going to be enslaved to anything. 
And Paul is saying that while you can boast in your freedom, all things are lawful for me, the truth is we are oftentimes easily enslaved by the very things that demonstrate our freedom. And sexual sin, in particular, it can enslave. It debases, it can dehumanize, it can objectify other people, it can strip people and human beings of their dignity, okay? And so Paul's trying to say, if you're really free in Christ, then you ought to be free from idolatry, and you ought to be free from enslavement to anything else, including sexual sin. All right. The second reason that they were doing what they did was not only because they had a distortion of truth, that they thought they were always free, but it was also a view of their body. Now, this is much more practical for, for most of us, and that is this. It's found in verse 13. He quotes what they're saying, and they say this, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. It's one of those other things that they're going around thinking and saying, and what they meant by that was that Hunger, for example, is a bodily appetite, right? So when you're hungry, you eat. It's simple as that. It's biological. And in the same way, they're saying sex is also a bodily appetite. So when the appetite is aroused, just go have sex. It's not a big deal, right? It's simple as that. And, you know, to be honest, if this is how they were thinking back then, I, I think there's some of that thinking in our culture today. Maybe not by us, but many of us even, maybe you know someone who kind of thinks along these lines. But the point is that it was their thinking that was common in the culture of their day. And it was a thinking that was influenced by uh, a Greek philosophy, believe it or not, that saw the physical body as a kind of prison, which, which kind of housed or kept the soul inside. And the body, therefore, was, was nothing more than a husk. It, it was like a, a cover for what really mattered, and that was your soul or your spirit. It's something that we would say today. If you believe, for example, when you say things like, well, you know what? It's not the outside that counts. It's the inside that counts, right? I don't know if you really believe that, but maybe you do, right? They took that, and they took it to another level, and they said, well, it's the inside that really counts, and the outside is nothing. And that led to two approaches to treating their bodies. Two approaches now to treating their bodies. One approach sought freedom from this prison of the body by living a life of asceticism or stoicism. What that means is they denied the body and all its appetites and desires. They embraced all physical affliction and hardship uh, for the body, hoping that harsher the treatment, the freer the soul or the freer the spirit would be. Does that sound familiar? because it's very common in many Eastern religions. That's how they approach it. But the other approach, if you believe this about your body, was the very opposite. Since the body doesn't really matter in the end, and all that matters is the inside, the spiritual stuff, then who cares what I do with my body? Indulge. Go at it. When you're hungry, eat all you want, right? When your sexual appetites are awakened, indulge in it all you want. It doesn't matter. And this is what we call a kind of hedonism, right? Just indulge as much as you want with your physical self because it really doesn't matter what you do with it. Now, I think there's some of that going on even in our culture that you might relate with or understand about. But, you know, maybe you're not straight out hedonism. You know, you're not, you're not going crazy every night, you know, with your bodies doing whatever you want to do. But let's admit it, okay? There are things and there have been some things that you did because one, you thought I'm free to do whatever I want. And two, if I feel like doing it, I'll do it. 
even while all the while knowing that it may not be the best thing or even the right thing. And at the same time, still saying you're a Christian. Right? Now, let me be a little less gracious for a moment. Okay? If I were a non-Christian, and that is what I saw in a professed Christian, you know what I would think? You know what I would say? What's the difference? What's the difference between you and me? Because if that's how you think, if that's how you make certain choices, I do the same thing myself. What's the difference between you and me? And by the way, right, even though I don't believe in God, I still make the choice not to sleep with prostitutes. Doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean I'm better? Isn't that morally better than you? And, and so Paul here, looking at these two reasons for why they're doing what they did, and wanting to make a difference in the life of this Corinthian church, he begins with their thinking. And he touches on five foundational Christian truths. And he shows them how if you understand and really believe in these five truths, it ought to change the way you think about and treat your bodies. These are serious implications for today. I'm not even just talking about sex, right? For example, many of us today in our, in our culture, to some extent, all of us, we struggle with body image problems, right? Maybe we're told sometimes overtly or, or even more, probably more likely subtly that what our body looks like needs to conform to some kind of stereotype of, of beauty that we've seen on TV or in movies or maybe in magazines or in people around us. Sometimes our culture tells us that to be happy, to be, to be able to fit in, even to be valuable, you've got to look a certain way, right? Now, I know that many of us here, you know, even myself, you know, you, you want to look good, you, you, you want to dress well, and, and you say, hey, I do this for me. Right? I'm just doing it for me, not anyone else. I do it for me. Right? And I've said that before, and I say that to myself as well. But let me ask you a question. What does for you look like? What does for you look like? Where did you get that picture? Right? It must have come from somewhere. Maybe not from a person or a group of people, but maybe from media, maybe from, from your, your society, your culture. What does doing it for you look like? I mean... You know, let me give you an example. I, not just too long ago, someone called me fat, right? Someone called me fat. Someone in the church, uh, a leader in the church. That's all I'll say. But someone called me fat, right? And you know what I said? I, I didn't say anything. I didn't really respond. You know why? Because it's true. I'm 10, 12 pounds overweight right now, and I'm trying to work on it, but it, it, it's, it's true. So, so what do you think I did, right? Do you think I went in front of a mirror, uh, take off my shirt, right, see myself and how much weight I've gained, grab, grab my love handles in front of the mirror and say, hey, you know what? I don't care what he says. I do this for me. I do this for me. Really? No, I, I didn't say that. I said I need to lose. I need to look good or I need to just be healthy, right? But I've got that picture of what that looks like from somewhere. And I, even I myself am, am influenced. And so this, this issue of how we view the body is very important. Is the idolatry of the body has never been more powerful than it is today. And for many people, even our young people, we are shamed by it. We become insecure because of it. We, we, we self-loathe because of it. And there's even self-reproach 
Okay, so five truths that Paul gives us to switch our thinking a little bit um, about how we view the body and, and the reason why they were engaging in what they did in this church. First, okay, here's first, five, five reasons first. The first reason is in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The first truth that Paul gives this church is this. Your body is for the Lord. It's for his glory. The body, he says, is for the Lord, the glory of God. That's the first truth. You know, they were saying this, like, if the body wants food, give it food, right? Uh, if the body wants sex, then give it sex. It doesn't matter. But Paul here is saying this in verse 13, it does matter. It does matter. Because you and I have a God who is Lord over both body and food. And he says that our bodies are for the Lord. Now, I know many of us have a hard time thinking like this, right? We don't really think about this. Maybe we don't really even believe like this. And in general, Christianity for many of us, it just seems too intellectual, maybe too abstract, too spiritual. But here you see in this passage, your body, what you do with it matters. How you use your hands, how you use your eyes, how you use your mouth, it matters to him. And you can't get more practical than that. He gave us bodies, a physical form to give him glory in all its weaknesses, with all its imperfections, with all its inadequacies. Your body is created by him and designed to honor him and please him and give him glory. Okay. And I think this should be some encouragement for some of us, at least, because when the world demands that our bodies conform to some idea of beauty, whatever that is, isn't it liberating to know that the correct use of my body is to honor God and not to honor the satisfaction and the approval of our peers, our culture, or even to our own minds? I think that frees us from that. So even if our culture says that appetites like food and sex and anything else, they must be met. Even if our culture says that if you do anything else, it's oppressive or it's self-harming, it's actually liberating to realize that our appetites, though we have them, don't have ultimate dominion or control over what we do with our bodies because God does. So glorify him, okay? That's the first truth. The Lord is for the body, the body for the Lord. The second thing is in verse 14, and he says this, basically saying, your body has a destiny. Your body has a destiny, right? That's what it says in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise up uh, us up by his power. Did you know this? Did you know that there is a resurrection that Christianity talks about? That Jesus was raised, how? In both body and spirit, Right? And then now we follow in his footsteps and we look forward to the resurrection in both what? Body and spirit. It just means that it's not all about your soul. Okay. It's not all about your spirit. Your bodies have a destiny. Christian hope is not just ethereal or spiritual in nature. It's also concrete. It's physical. It's solid. It's embodied. And this is something that also we just don't really think about. You know, I was talking with my mom and she was asking me the question what heaven's going to be like. And I asked her, what do you think? And you know what she said? She said, I think we're just all going to be spirits floating in the space somehow, kind of just like out of consciousness and not really recognizing anything else. And, 
And I said, that, that's, not what, that's not what I see in the Bible, right? It's that we will be resurrected in both body and spirit, both body and spirit. And this is comforting to know. You know why? Because your loved ones who have gone ahead into glory have gone ahead in spirit and body. And it means that one day we will be reunited with all those loved ones and we will recognize one another, not because we're all spirit, but because we're also in some body form. I don't know what that looks like, but it will be a glorified body, right? Your body is not a prison that just merely houses your soul like the Greeks thought. It has dignity, it has honor given to it by God, and it has a destiny for eternity. And if that's true, then how we use our bodies today, it does matter. In light of resurrection glory, Paul wants us to ask ourselves how we ought to think about our bodies here and now, okay? So that's the second thing, the second truth he gives us. The third truth that he gives us is this, and that's in verse 15. He says this, third and fourth, your body is united to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15, or listen to this. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Let that sink in for a moment. Your body a member of Jesus Christ. He's saying that there is this connection, there is this mysterious union, relationship, however you want to call it. The word united here uh, literally means something like joined or glued together. Your body and Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Because of the fourth truth. In verse 19, it's filled with his spirit. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Not just your heart, not just your soul, but your body. The spirit of Christ inhabits us, not just together as the church, but also individually as well. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's a weird thing to think about. Uh, I had a pastor friend who had two kids and they were having dinner, and you know, in their family, they had a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall, you know, the one that maybe your parents had, this, this really good-looking, long-haired guy, sort of bronze-skinned, you know, hanging on the wall, a wall, it's a picture of Jesus, and, and, the, and, and the father was trying to teach one of his sons uh, what the Bible meant when it said, Jesus in us, or Christ in me, is to live, and he was saying that, well, you know, that, that Jesus Christ is in you, in the spirit, and so as this boy was eating and listening to his dad, he started crying, he started bawling, he started crying, and he looked at his dad, he says, get him out, get him out, get him out, because in his mind, he saw that picture of Jesus, this old guy with the beard, in his body, and it kind of freaked him out. It's a weird thing to think about, right? But that's what Paul says. The third truth, your body is united to Christ. The fourth, how? Because it's filled with the Spirit of Christ. And I want us to think about this for a moment. If a perfect and infinitely holy God is said to somehow dwell in your body, what does that make your body? It makes your body a sacred space. Like a temple was considered sacred space because it had and housed the presence of a holy God. So now our bodies, Paul says, is that temple. Is that how you think about your body? A sacred space? I mean, if you really thought that, shouldn't that change what we do with it, how we do with it, how we take care of it? 
So I'm going to be honest, all this stuff, it, it's very challenging. Even, even for me, when I think about, when I think about what I want to do with myself, what I want to eat uh, with all my physical appetites, whether to indulge or abuse or, or distort, when I think about how easy it is for, for our bodies to get hooked on something, this stuff is really challenging. But here's the truth, that God dwells in us, and that ought to encourage us, because if I was left alone to my own resources and strength, I would never make any progress in the Christian growth, in the Christian life. But because God dwells in us, because his spirit is with us, it means he's there to give us resources, to strengthen us, to give us hope in our minds, in our hearts, and also in our bodies. That's hope. That's hope for you. Then you will not be tomorrow or the next week or, or the days to come who you were today or yesterday, because God who dwells in you is at work in you to will and to do for his good. And that's an encouraging truth, okay? Now, I know oftentimes it doesn't feel like that, okay? Oftentimes it's a real struggle. I know this firsthand, and I'm sure you do too. Oftentimes we fail, but the truth is God gave us bodies for his glory. God promises our bodies for a destiny. He unites himself to us in body and spirit, dwells in our whole selves, fourthly, and it means then that there is hope for us that he is still at work to change us by his grace for himself, okay? Now, here's the last point, and it's in the last verses of our passage. You, not just your soul, but also your body, was bought at a price. That's what he says in the last verses. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so honor God glorify God with your body. This is so not PC, okay, especially in our culture. I don't think it was either in their culture at that time. It, this is, Paul here is being right in your face, right, right in our culture, a culture that has raised to the highest value self-determination and self-expression, a culture today that says, I get to decide today who I want to be. I get to determine who I am, what I am, and what I want to do, and no one else. In a culture like this, we are constantly inventing and reinventing ourselves in light of this contemporary thinking. And this is similar to the way the church in Corinth is thinking. But what Paul is telling them right up front is this. This is not how Christians ought to think of themselves. Listen to what Paul says saying. You are not your own. He's saying, you don't belong to you anymore. And that means, if that's true, it means that you're not free to just invent or define or identify yourself however you please, no matter how much it might feel good, seem good, seem right to us. Why not? Because you were bought at a price. You were purchased with the very blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Yes, we have liberty. Yes, we have freedom. But it's only because Jesus gave up his liberty and he forfeited his freedom for us. When he was shackled in chains, when he was beaten and then finally crucified on a cross for you, for your freedom. He paid a big price for us and for all our sins, for all our guilt, sexual or otherwise. He's paid in full so that now you and I, he can say, we belong to him, body and soul. 
body and soul. And that's why Paul says, you don't belong to you, you are his. Brought into his household under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing is that he's calling this church that is struggling with sexual sin to bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus who gave his life for us. Trusting that under his watch, you'll actually find real liberty and real freedom. So Paul says, therefore, glorify God with your body. Your body is for the Lord. It's been given a destiny. Your body is united to Jesus Christ and filled with his spirit. And last but not least, your body and soul were bought at a price. If you and I could get these five truths, if we could press them down, not just into our thinking, but also down into our hearts, it will change the way you see yourself and you won't be swept away, swept away by the world's cultures and its ever-changing views about our bodies and what we do. And so I'm going to leave it right there as we look at this passage uh, to think about these things a little more carefully, given you what Paul's talking about. Next week, we'll get a little more detailed uh, in how these things might relate to us and what this does for, for the church today. But for now, let's pray. Let's take a moment to pray. 